If our politicians were to consult their constitution before every vote, we estimate that 80% of the government would not exist. If that were the case, we would also have a government that prioritizes protecting liberties, not controlling its citizens. Today, we're discussing how it's possible to decimate the size of government and ensure that its main priority is our liberties. I'm Paul Dragu, and this is Freedom is the Cure. As I speak, the national debt is nearing $29 trillion. That debt pays for federal programs that have no business existing. But our elected officials have used their powers to not only plunder the fruits of our labor, but to control us. In today's largest American cities, citizens can't go to a ball game or eat at a restaurant without showing their vaccine papers. Requiring passports to move about in your own country is a hallmark of an authoritarian state. The Soviets did it as did the socialist Third Reich. The good news is that COVID-related mandates and restrictions have awakened millions of Americans to the fact that government, when allowed, will and does oppress. But we didn't get here overnight. For a century, like a metastasizing cancer, government continued to grow larger, less efficient, and more coercive. Elected officials have been lobbying out new laws, regulations, and departments like Santa throwing candy at a Christmas parade. My guest today, are Christian Gomez and Peter Rykowskis from the research department here at the John Birch Society. And we're gonna be discussing the proper size and role of government and how Americans can put it back in its place. Hey guys, thanks for coming on. Thanks Paul. Thanks for having us. So that 80%, that that would seem like a really large number for a lot of people uh, to say that 80% of the government is unconstitutional. What are some examples of institutions and programs that have no constitutional permission to exist? I mean, there's so many unconstitutional ones. I mean, the education department, uh, there's no, you know, the Constitution doesn't give the states or doesn't give the federal government any authorization to have any role in education policy. Uh, The transportation department, there's no constitutional authorization for that for the federal government. Uh, Health and human services, uh, the EPA, uh, so many other agencies uh, with all those, you know, there's nothing delegated to the federal government, and all that is reserved to the states and to the people. Yeah, the most recent example would be the uh, Department of Homeland Security, authorized shortly after 9-11. Uh, created, but there's no authorization in the Constitution for a Homeland Security Department. If you want these things to be constitutional, then you'd have to amend the Constitution to allow for these departments, like just, just like the Constitution already allows for uh, the... Um, Department of the of of the Secretary of State. That that Department of State that is constitutional, uh, but a lot of these newer ones, last hundred plus years, they've got no authorization. Well, how do they justify? Is it always the the well-being clause? Like, how do they justify such uh, such programs that I think anyone could read through the Constitution and see that you know there is nothing in there permitting, like you mentioned, the Department of Education, uh, Homeland Security. I mean, they barely even try to justify it these days. I mean, they, they, they might cite the necessary and proper clause, which they uh, completely uh, misinterpret and take out of context. Uh, but more and more, I mean, our government officials don't even care about what the Constitution says, you know, and the fact that it only delegates 
certain enumerated powers of the federal government and leads and leaves the rest of it to the states. Yeah, during the debate for Obamacare, there was one Democratic congressman I, whose name escapes me at the moment, but he said that the federal government can do essentially whatever it wants. And uh, when Ron Paul, shortly after the whole 9-11 um, um, attacks and the, when, when George W. Bush made the case for going into uh, Iraq, uh, you had Ron Paul who wanted to have a declaration of war. Uh, he opposed the wars in Afghanistan and the wars in uh, Iraq specifically. But he said, if we're, if we're going to do this, we should do it the right way. We should have a declaration of war. And he proposed that in the congressional committee at the time, which was chaired by, the, by uh, a Republican uh, since they were the majority, uh, both the Republican and Democratic chairpersons uh, shot him down for suggesting that one they called his ideas dangerous and frivolous. And that's the mindset that these members of Congress have in leadership of both parties, that, it, well, they're not going to try to justify, because to try to justify everything with the Constitution is just that, dangerous and frivolous. That's so, uh, that's ludicrous. My understanding is that we haven't, actually declared war since we did it in World War II. We've obviously been involved in, in, a, in a mountain of conflicts, and uh, there have been very few victories, outright victories in that. I would think uh, maybe there's a lesson uh, to learn there. What about the Health and Human Services Agency? Is uh, the federal health, what is it, the Department of Health and Human Services, is that yeah, yep. unconstitutional? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's nothing, nothing in the Constitution that allows the federal government to have any role or any, or, or do anything with, with regards to health uh, policies. Can you think of how its existence has aided this authoritarianism that we are now seeing from the federal government under the guise of, of public health with this whole COVID hysteria? Well, there are a few things. Uh, first off, I mean, one of many examples, um, Dr. Anthony Fauci is an employee of the Health and Human Services Department. But there are a lot of other, you know, much more substantial um, examples as well. The uh, CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, that's another sub-agency of HHS. And they're the ones uh, telling people, you know, you got to wear masks. You know, if you got get on a plane or a bus or a train, you got to put on a face mask, even mm -hmm. though it, you know, is no, you know, doesn't do anything. Um, you know, and then we have the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services (CMS), which uh, essentially banned uh, any visitors from entering nursing homes. So if you have a parent or a grandparent, you know, about to die, you know, you 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 can't actually enter yeah. in to see that parent or grandparent, you know, and then they most recently mandated that all nursing home employees uh, get the uh, vaccine. And this was a CMS uh, guideline? Yep, yep. Those were orders that they uh, made and they affected uh, most, if not all, nursing homes all across the country. In our communities, we would see this centralized approach to, to COVID. And I think that's a good argument for why we don't need a federal HHS because the communities were so different. And now as information is coming in, we're realizing that um, there's nothing to suggest that those who took the, the, the guidelines, who used the CDC guidelines, fared any better. Obviously, there's a lot of comparisons between California and, and Florida. You know, Florida's like, we're, we're going to do our own thing. Uh, and it seems that they fared better. 
Um, I, I don't want there to be any confusion. Maybe some folks are listening or and thinking, wow, it's like well, these guys are anti-government. Because what a lot of these institutions, this is allowed by this would be allowed by the states, and the states do have their own health departments and, and what whatnot. Right? Usually, the state governments mirror what the federal government does. So, if there's a Department of Homeland Security at the federal level, which there is, and then a lot of states have their own state versions of that. But the Tenth Amendment specifically states that the power is not uh, delegated in the Constitution to the federal government, or thereby reserved to the people or to the states. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I'm paraphrasing it. Yeah. But um, essentially, like the Department of, of Education that Peter mentioned before, there's no federal authorization for that. But that does not prohibit the state governments from creating a state Department of Education. Now, education would be better handled if federal and state government got out of it. But when you look at the U.S. federal constitution, um, there's no prohibition on the state governments uh, from being allowed to be in charge of that. Of course, the best way to handle education would be at, at the most local level. So local municipalities, yeah. like city governments. But even then, a better approach than that, of course, would be homeschooling or allowing churches and religious institutions to be in charge of education or the parents, which is what the Bible says. The Bible recommends yeah. that parents raise their children, not give them up to, like, give up that. That's one of their biblical responsibilities as parents. I think it's so hard for people to imagine a life without, you know, dumping your kids off, you know, on the curb, essentially. It, and we've gone generations now. This is something that's personal to me because we started homeschooling uh, our child just last year, and we learned a lot about the harms of, of public education. Of course, we here at the John Birch Society, we have a Save Our Children from Public Education Action Project. And over time, uh, there, there's been quite a bit. And I think people should know that not only are these in, un, unconstitutional, but some of them, probably most of them, but especially the Department of Education, it's terribly inept. If you go to the to the nation's report card, which is where the you know the government keeps track of of how good it's doing, there is not one single category in which uh, half, even half of the students are proficient. Uh, have you guys seen that? I think it's forty two percent is the highest a senior is proficient at, and it's economics, which I think is pretty ironic. <laughs> but if you go again to the nation's report card, you can put this in in a search bar. You'll see that the lowest uh, category, the lowest percentage rate that any high schooler, a uh, twelfth grader, is proficient in is history, American history, and I think that's really telling. That's really telling because I think that's where you would learn. Uh, about the Constitution and what's not constitutional and what is. Before we go into how we can write this, we, this is something we, we've talked about as well. You know, there's a lot of talk about the deficit. And what would actually happen if we, we curbed down, we decimated government to its constitutional parameters? What would happen to the deficit? Well, the deficit would totally uh, disappear because we wouldn't be spending you know, these massive sums of money. I mean, how much did we spend last year? I think it was uh, like over $6 trillion. You know, how much of that was constitutional? Almost zero of it. I mean, so much of it was unconstitutional. So yeah. if we cut all of that, you know, the debt and the deficit wouldn't even be problems anymore. Just think of it in, in terms of like personal debt. Suppose you have lots of credit card bills. You're in, you're in lots of credit card debt or student loan debt in the thousands or 
tens of thousands, or if it's college, hundred thousands of dollars, maybe, especially if you had a higher degree. And uh, but part of the problem isn't just the debt you're in, but you're constantly buying something new you don't need. Maybe you got second house, you're, you're leasing cars that you're not even driving just because they're cool. So you're constantly just spending, spending, spending money. If you cut all the spending to just what you needed, maybe you can't afford to live in that fancy house and pay that mortgage, move into a small apartment, mm -hmm. and cut down your 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 grocery bill to just what you need and not the extravagant expensive products and stop buying all this frivolous stuff you don't need. And you only focus on what you needed to survive on. All that extra money that you were just wasting away on on junk, you could now use it to pay your personal debt, your credit card bills, your student loan bills. So likewise, apply that to Congress. If they just stop spending yeah. on all this 80 plus percent of unconstitutional if we just start living within our means. Yeah, then they can start paying off those debts that they owe to uh, whoever we're borrowing money from. Sadly, China, uh, the Federal Reserve, because all the money that's printed is uh, has to be paid back on interest. But we, we would be able to begin to have uh, more fiscal sanity. And um, and the deficit, it would it, overnight, I mean, it wouldn't go away overnight so large, but it would start to really go away within a few years. We would be totally debt-free. How would we even get there? How do we get here, and how would we get back to reducing the size of government? Well, we got to where we are because Congress uh, has totally ignored the Constitution in so many various ways, whether it's you know creating these various unconstitutional agencies or delegating power uh, to the president unconstitutionally. So they failed to follow the Constitution, and the American people failed to hold the congressmen accountable by voting them out at the next election. Yeah, I would say that's the key right there. It's the electorate really is is the bigger problem than even Congress. Um, you know, when, when Alex de Tocqueville wrote his book, uh, Democracy in America, back in the mid-19th century, he discussed how, especially in Connecticut, I believe it was, was the case example, how you couldn't find a person uh, I believe it was in Connecticut, but but nevertheless, you couldn't find a person, a U.S. citizen at the time, who did not know his or her consti the, the Constitution of the United yeah. States very well. And now, I mean, go to Connecticut and try to find an average, the average voter who knows the Constitution uh, very well or even very little. You, you'll be hard-pressed to find. Uh, you'll find people who don't know squat about the Constitution mm -hmm. probably in the majority of the population. And that's not just true of Connecticut or New England, but the entire United States of America. So we have the, we've had um, education in our country in the 19th century, especially early 19th century. Americans knew the Constitution. They studied it. There were so many law books written on, just commentaries on the Constitution. And then by the time you get to the late 19th century, you see the rise of the populist movement and the progressive movement. And Americans just ignoring the Constitution and voting for what they want. Oh, yeah. I have this need. Government should be the solution with William Jennings Bryan and the populist movement and progressivism taking a, a hold in the early 20th century. So the American people started to ignore the Constitution, not know it as well, and that was reflected in who they voted into office. So here we are uh, after decades or over a century of progressivism and populist uh, left-leaning government and this is where it's taken us. So how do we get back? It's going to be a gradual road, but it's going to be a gradual road of educating the American electorate about the Constitution. So we get back by educating voters this, this on one, what, what is the Constitution? Mm -hmm. And for that, the JBS offers the 
Um, constitution is a solution. The Constitution is Solution series with uh, Robert Brown yeah. teaching on it. That's a, that's a foundational. We need to know the Constitution first. And once we get start to get that down packed, then we start educating the electorate on, hey, your congressman voted on this that yeah. is not constitutional. That's not good. Or or she voted on this and that is constitutional. Let's, let's award her accordingly. You know, that kind of thing. Um, so that's where we need to go. We need to educate the electorate on, on, on the constitutionality of the votes, but not just the constitutionality of the votes, the cost of the votes. I think that speaks louder than anything else. Uh, if you could show people these expenses, because we talk about like coronavirus and these medical things that Peter was discussing um, or earlier with, with HHS and uh, CDC. Uh, why does the government get away with some of that stuff in part? Well, it's because the American people think they have a need mm-hmm. The government's got to pay for it right away. Yeah. Um, but if the American people saw the cost, like most Americans who, who you know, choose to get vaccinated because they think it's the right thing or they've been brainwashed, whatever, it's their choice that they want to do that. But if they're making that choice to get to get that vaccine, part of the reason why they're doing it is because it's there's no out of pocket cost. They believe it's free, yeah. and in a way, it kind of is because they're not directly paying for the vaccine shots, but the government is paying for it, so they are going to pay in the long run. So what's the cost of these coronavirus bills? That's that's when you start to show the American people it costs this many trillions of dollars and what that equals to you. Uh, I think then the American people start to wake up. Wait a minute, I'm gonna have to pay that back eventually later. Yeah, it's, it's like a credit card. We don't pay for it now, but the bill will come. And I know Peter has a lot more to say about that. Well, is what about the inflation we are experiencing now? Is there any connection between that and our entitled attitude and our you know, paternal government? Well, when you're printing money like crazy, I mean, that all that does is it... Uh, well, we're printing it to take care, right? To dole out, you know, it's seemingly as citizens, they look at it and they're like, I'm just come. I'm getting what I need. You know, I'm getting a check and I'm not doing anything for it. So that seems pretty... Yeah, right that and funding lines. all the various government agencies. I wanted to mention you brought up the Constitution as the solution. It's it's a wonderful, wonderful series. It's actually how I came into the JBS fold. I don't know if a lot of people have that same experience because it's a six-part series. It is uh, six lectures. It takes, I think it's at least an hour, an hour each. Uh, but it really opened up my eyes. And I. that's why we work so hard. That's why we work so hard to emphasize teaching the Constitution. So we got new tools. We got new tools all the time, but we it's I, I guess it's actually not a new tool. It's a it's a new edition of, of tools we had. You guys have here on the table, you have uh, what's called Congressman Scorecard, right? And uh, these and the point of this is to help people determine who is actually following the Constitution. We talked about Congress. In a way, you know, we, we elect these people, but then they make uh, the, the votes that ends us ends up putting us in these situations. You guys want to talk about the Congressman uh, scorecard and the Freedom Index? Yeah, so uh, the New American uh, publishes the Freedom Index uh, two times a year, four times per Congress. And, uh, you know, it's a great way to educate Americans about what the Constitution actually says on important issues and to hold congressmen accountable uh, you know, showing them how faithful, showing the American people how faithful they are to the Constitution. So now we're rolling out the Congressman Scorecard, which is really a convenient way to do the same things, educate Americans, 
and hold Congress accountable, but doing it in a way where uh, people can you know, spread the word, uh, print out various uh, pamphlets uh, showing people how their congressman is doing. And it's very convenient, a piece of uh, regular, ordinary computer paper, you print it out, and it shows uh, six very important votes from the current Congress, uh, how the congressman voted, uh, whether the vote was constitutional or not, and in many cases, how much the bill costs a typical American household. So it's a very uh, effective way of uh, educating people and making sure that Congress is faithful to the Constitution. Well, I'm holding two congressman scorecards here, and I got one for uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Rand Paul, and they have significantly different scores. Uh, Christian, how do we how, how do we get here? Well, uh, I just want to go back to you. You were mentioning that these are um, almost like new additions. So for those that are listening, uh, and maybe even, of course, those that are watching as well, they may, uh, some of the old-time birchers will recall Trim, the uh, tax reform immediately uh, mm-hmm. campaign that JBS had from the late 70s through the early 2000s, where we produce essentially a scorecard on how members of the, only the House of, Represent- Rep- House of Representatives were voting. Now we um, have a very similar tool called Scorecard, not just for the House, but also for the Senate, and it does ver- more or less uh, the, the same uh, uh, work of educating the electorate about a, a member of Congress. So in the case of Rand Paul, who's a U.S. senator and AOC, who represents a congressional district that covers part of the Bronx and Queens and New York City, um, yeah, the scores are vastly different. One, they're, they're in two different legislative mm. uh, branches, so there's different votes. Um, but Rand Paul in the U.S. Senate is a person who consistently votes with the U.S. Constitution uh, more times than not, uh, usually, almost always. And AOC is one who rarely votes the constitutional way. And when she does vote the constitutional way, it's, uh, it may be motivated for an unconstitutional reason. But with the scorecard, what, what's nice about it is, like Peter was saying, you could print it out on either the newamerican.com or thefreedomindex.org. You could print them out in color as a bifold, mm-hmm. double-sided, or put the safe cost. You could print it in black and white. Uh, and a good way to make this tool effective is to print it on colored paper. And for those that are listening and can't see what we have in front of us, we have some sample copies that are actually printed in various colors. Uh, you can go to Office Max Staples and, or Amazon and buy different colored papers. Uh, but we have uh, the, the, those with low scores on pink paper, uh, the pinkos on bright pink neon paper, <laughs> and those who vote, let's say, really well, like you know, over ninety. Give or them the green light. Yeah, you give them the green score, like in school, and the teacher had the red pen for bad uh-huh. and the green pen for good. Of course, uh, you could use red paper if you want. It's a little harder to see with red paper with pink. The connotation being they're a pinko, yeah, because uh, they're not they're not quite a full communist. Although that could be debated <laughs> with some of the members of Congress. Uh, but, you know, you have, let's say, a, a town hall meeting and AOC, let's say she's your congresswoman. You live in the Bronx, Paul, and your congresswoman is, is AOC and she's going to have a town hall meeting. So you decide to go there to the, to the South Bronx where she's going to have her meeting mm-hmm. and you, pa- you print these out on your computer and black and white and you, uh, you show them, uh, hand them out on pink paper so it's bright, everyone can see it. And everyone looks at how she voted on various issues. And, uh, and, and it must be noted that this isn't for partisan reasons. Um, we produce this to educate. Uh, so right. we don't give scores 
based on party. There certainly are Republicans with very low scores, and most Democrats get poor scores because almost all the Democrats don't vote constitutionally to begin right. with. That's their own problem. But this is not a, a partisan uh, gimmick. This is about showing how your elected official in the House and U.S. Senate is voting in accordance with the Constitution. And the beautiful thing about the scorecard on the back, not just does it have a check or, uh, or, or an X on how they voted, if it's good or bad, but we also have the cost per household. Ah, and, uh, and Peter, I see here. I'll let Peter uh, discuss more about the importance of that and, and how that uh, is determined. So that's not their salary. <laughs> no, that's that's how much the bill costs per household. Because uh, when... Because it's easy for people when, you know, looking at bills just to view it in an, in an abstract way. But if you put the cost per household, now you're telling people or showing people right. how much the bill will actually cost them personally. Right. You know, so we see here, you know, AOC and some of the other congress uh, congressmen, they uh, supported the uh, COVID appropriations bill that was passed in March of this year. That bill costs over $14,000 per household. So you and your family, you know, if you uh, want to, you know, just pay off this single bill, you'd have to pay $14 of your own, $14,000. Big difference. Yeah, big difference. <laughs> but $14,000 of your own money. Right. You know, and then further down, um, the, you know, so-called bi bipartisan infrastructure bill, which uh, very little of it actually was infrastructure, uh, Congress passed that. That costs over nine thousand per taxpayer, well, per household. And then the Build Back Better Act, which the House passed but the Senate has not voted on yet, right. costs over thirteen thousand per household. So you know, add that all up, and you know, people are paying you know like thirty thousand or more uh, for you know just the various bills that we listed, and we could put a lot more bills on this uh, scorecard. There were probably some Americans during the whole COVID um, uh, fiasco uh, pandemic that were maybe happy to get that $1,000 stimulus or, 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 or more in the mail. Especially if they had kids, maybe they got you know, a couple $500 here and there for the, for the kiddos that they got too. Um, but when you look at what that cost you, uh, it's, it's, for, unless you had a lot of kids, unless mm -hmm. you had a lot of kids, uh, y y uh, it's costing you more to get that money from the government. It's almost like I have a $5 bill, or better yet, I have a, uh, a nickel and you have a dime and I try to trade you, hey, you know, look at this big dime. It's bigger than that dime. It's, it, look at this big nickel I have. It's bigger than your dime. I try to trade it in for you. I mean, I'm, I'm getting the, the better deal. That's what the federal government is doing. They're giving up these stimulus checks with COVID, let's say, yeah. uh, but then you have to pay back how much more uh, you know, in the cost per household. Uh, so it's it's not really a, a good deal if you look at it just mathematically. Yeah, so these bills, they, you know, they completely nullify what you get from the COVID paychecks, but then also the bills have a terrible effect on inflation. So even what you're getting from the government, you know, gets, you know, decreases in its value. It's totally canceled so, out. There's, yeah. yeah. It, it's, 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 it's the hidden tax every time the government just spends this money or prints new money yeah. like crazy, whatever you have saved in your bank savings right. or even under your bed, um, it's it's like it's being taxed secretly. The value is being depreciated from that and being taken away. Uh, that's how, that's basically, you know, we're taking from Paul to pay Peter, yeah. like the value of what you already had so we can give uh, more to other people. 
if we didn't have inflation, <laughs> you would, your money wouldn't be devalued. And that's what a lot of these, these, all these bills, all this government intrusion, all, all they're coming to save the day, that's really what it amounts to. Uh, I don't know where it ends, really. We, I looked at an article that we printed in 1986, I believe, and Peter, you looked at the same one, and, and I don't know if you got a chance to read it, but, I mean, the writer was talking about Reagan's spending, and the, the deficit then was $2 trillion, and he's saying, we keep going this way, we are in big, big trouble. We're approaching $29 trillion. Like, this has to, I mean, is. I don't know. Is is there any is there any hope really at twenty nine trillion or are we are we just gonna spend till we fall apart? <laughs> what a weird question. As time right? goes on, it certainly will get harder and harder to make those uh, deep cuts. That's why it's so important for us to be educating people right now, and you know, not uh, sitting back, but you know, getting active right now and educating people about you know these bills and how they align or. No. Uh, completely violate the Constitution, you know, doing it right now and, you know, not getting complacent. You guys, I really appreciate these tools. Uh, I don't know if there's anyone beyond you guys working to make these tools. If, if so, thank them, uh, thank them for me. I mean, these are amazing tools. And we make, as you guys said, we make these available. Uh, you can download them. They're free. They're accessible, right? Uh, you can go online. Uh, where, where can people find, uh, find the Congressman's Scorecard? If you go to thefreedomindex.org or thenewamerican.com, you can find the Freedom Index. Mm-hmm. And once you access the page, uh, you'll be able to uh, quickly find the scorecards from there. Yeah. And yeah. we also include uh, tutorial videos and a user guide to further help people mm-hmm. understand not just how to find them, but also how to effectively uh, use them. Yeah, so once you get to the homepage for the Freedom Index on either of those uh, URLs that yeah. Peter mentioned, the, the, the scorecard function will be on the left side of the screen. Mm-hmm. It says scorecard under, under Freedom Index. So click on that so you can get to, to generate the scorecards. And once you click on scorecard, you're taken to a page that shows, uh, uh, is, it, is it the first one, like all the U.S. senators, I believe? Yep, first one, yep. Yeah, so there's, there's a tab there to switch it over to House. And you could search by by the name, or you can go through the list. And when you click on whoever's name you generate on the screen, let's say it's uh, our favorite Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, you can scroll down. You have a, you see an online version of her scorecard, electronic version. You can scroll below. You can put in your contact information if you want to pass these out. You you want to um, uh, you know have people maybe get back to you if they have any questions or whatnot. You could put down your name and phone number, email, contact info if you want on the bottom of the uh, in a in a in a little box, text box there, and it'll be generated in the PDF. And like I said before, you could print it as a bifold, you could print it as a portrait style, yeah. and the it'll have all the same information. What about you mentioned the Freedom Index? I don't think we touched on that. Can you quickly go over that? It's kind of the same concept, right? Well, we do the Freedom Index uh, four times per Congress, so. Uh, the scorecards are really a subset of the Freedom Index votes, and it's really the scorecards are based on the Freedom mm. Index. But that's really our main tool for uh, educating people about uh, you know, how faithful our congressmen, our, our U.S. representatives and senators are to the Constitution, and then you know, showing people you know, the bills that they vote on. Are they constitutional? Are they not? You know, what does the Constitution say on that? Yeah, so the Freedom Index looks most primarily focuses on the constitutionality of the votes, and it's not it, it's not individual. It's 
every congressman's on the right. in the print version at least. Um, we have every state, every representative, every U.S. senator. The scorecards are individual. They're tailored for your congressional district or for your state in case of the U.S. Senate. And um, we emphasize cost per household in the scorecard. The, the, the Freedom Index doesn't really uh, emphasize that aspect. Awesome tools, guys. Really awesome. And so we encourage, uh, we encourage everyone listening and watching to go to, to thenewamerican.com. You can get these tools. And uh, this is... This is pretty much the best way to rein in that massive, overgrown, unconstitutional aspect of the government that, that we've been talking about. Uh, there, there is no other way. We, we have to know what is constitutional and what is not, and then we have to hold these people up to, to, those, uh, to that criteria. I, I, don't, I think there's probably some of them who don't even know. They, really, they, don't, they don't think like that. Uh, and so I would think the best thing is we figure out who they are and the electorate then either gets rid of them or educates them and <laughs> reforms them or whatever, you know. So thank you, gentlemen. Thank you so much for, uh, for what you do. And uh, thanks, uh, thanks for this wonderful work. Thanks for having us on, Paul. Thank you. So there you have it, folks. Remember, you can find the Freedom Index at thefreedomindex.org and thenewamerican.com. Thank you for tuning in and Merry Christmas. Are you concerned with where America is headed? If not, you should be. So let's get busy on solutions. At the John Birch Society, our staff and members have over 60 years of experience in pushing back on outrageous abuses of government. Our tools are truth and education. Our methods are tried and true with scores of successful operations. Join together with the tens of thousands of members of the John Birch Society nationwide to make a difference. We have professional staff strategically placed all over the nation and will provide the training you need to be a success. We will provide the materials you need to be a success. We will provide the esprit de corps that comes with working in concert with tens of thousands of members nationwide on the same goals. If you want to bellyache and do nothing, don't join because we don't want you. But if you're a patriot and you love our country and want to preserve the blessings of liberty to the next generation, then we need you in the fight today. Not soon, today. Let me clarify, today. Go to jbs.org and get involved right now. And remember, the Constitution is the solution.